2 Timothy 2, 22-26 So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. Because of the gospel, we should fight sin by pursuing righteousness in Christian community. So, for those of you who were here last week, uh, we went through kind of the, the second half, or the first part of the second half of Second Timothy 2. And in that, I laid out uh, what it is that Paul is telling to Timothy. So there's this verse, Second Timothy 2, 15, which says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And uh, what we talked about when we covered that verse was that uh, it's not, uh, that, that verse doesn't mean what we normally think that it means. Normally we hear that verse and we think, I need to work really hard. I need to do a whole bunch of stuff in order to do my best so that God will then look at me and say, I approve him. But that's not what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy says, do your best to present yourself as one who is approved. Timothy already has God's approval, not because of who Timothy is, not because of what Timothy has done, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so because of the gospel, because of the grace, mercy, and love that's poured out on God's people because of what Christ has done, we are approved by him if we have trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for our salvation. So we don't need to do our best to be approved. Instead, what we need to do is we need to do our best or be zealous about presenting ourselves to God as people who have been approved. And it's in our passage today where Paul turns the corner. He's been telling Timothy all about who he is, all about this new identity he has because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And now he's going to tell him about these new actions that he should have. So the very first word of our passage is, So. Because of all the stuff that's come before, because of the gospel, because of the good news, because of the grace, mercy, and love that's been poured out on us, then do these things. So, all of this today, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Everything that I'm about to say is all tied in to what we talked about last week, what we just talked about. It's all tied in to the grace that comes to us from the cross. So don't hear me saying, go out and do a bunch of stuff. Hear me saying that Christ has redeemed you. You are different. So do a bunch of stuff. Because of what He's done for us, we should obey. Because of the Gospel, fight sin by pursuing righteousness in Christian community. That's what we're after today. So he says, so... Because of the gospel, flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. Fleeing is something you do to get from danger to safety. So if you're in a dangerous situation and you want to leave, what you do is flee. You don't kind of calmly leave the area. You move quickly. You run. You flee. And he's telling him specifically that he's supposed to flee youthful passions. 
Passions here isn't, you know, some sort of like high level of excitement, right? Like some people will say, like, I'm, I'm passionate about music. And what that means is I really like it. Here, when Paul uses this word, when he talks about passions, he's not talking about interests. He's not talking about, you know, a level of excitement. He's talking about sinful desires that are present within us. Specifically here, he's talking about youthful desires. These kind of sinful desires that are present among young people. It's because he's writing to Timothy, who was a younger guy. So he's telling him to flee from these sinful desires, these bad passions that are waging war within him. But this is what the problem is. You think about fleeing, running from danger. So if someone said, you know, you need to flee from a snake. I was going to say a bear, but we can't outrun bears, so that's a bad example. If you flee from a snake, what do you do? You run away. You, you get to where safety is. You get to where that snake can't bite you. But how do we flee our sinful desires? My sinful desires aren't like a snake that's over there on the floor. That if I run fast enough or I run far enough, I can get away from them. From them. Because if I run from this spot to over here, where are my sinful desires? They're still here. They're still with me. They're still in me. They're still part of who I am. They're that, you know, that old man that even though Christ has killed, even though he's dead, he still is clinging to life within me. And so the, the answer to fleeing youthful passions is not simply running away. We have to run towards something else. We have to take those sinful desires and replace them with something else, which is what Paul says next. Flee youthful passions and, two steps, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So fleeing is running from safety to danger. Pursuing is this kind of crazed, zealous pursuit of something. This word is used both positively in Scripture, like pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. That's a good thing. It's used positively in Scripture. It's also used negatively. Paul uses the same word to describe who he was before Christ saved him. What did Paul pursue before Jesus? He pursued Christians. He hunted them down. He dragged them to jail. He enslaved them. He was passionate in a bad way. He was zealous in a bad way for punishing and persecuting Christians. And so this word of, uh, you know, pursue, it's not just some idol following after something else. It's not just being lazy and lackadaisical about hoping that we'll just somehow wander into righteous living. It is a zealous pursuit is a continual lifelong going after something else and so we flee from these youthful passions and we pursue righteousness faith love and peace but it would probably be helpful for us to know what it is that we're pursuing right you can't chase somebody down that you don't know who they are you can only follow uh, something that you know that you're seeking after and so we're so supposed to pursue righteousness Faith, love, and peace. So righteousness is simply right conduct. 
Sometimes in Scripture it means this standing before God where we get this legal declaration that we are right in His eyes. That's not something that we have to pursue. That's something that's given to us because of Christ's work on the cross. So Paul isn't telling us to go out and try to get justification. There's one way you get justification, which is being right with God. You get that by trusting in Christ. Here, he's saying, live as someone who has been justified. Pursue this kind of right living. But how do we know what it is that we're supposed to do? How do we know what's right? Do we look... You know, to the news, or to culture, or to the world, or to our friends, or to our parents. Where do we get the one standard for what God desires from us? It's in this book that you've got in front of you. It's in God's Word. If you want to know, and you know, students all the time say, like, I want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, we have one completely reliable and trustworthy source for what God desires from us. It's not ourselves. It's not other people. It's not the church. It's not pastors. It's not our parents. It's God's Word. And so if you want to know what He wants you to do, look in the book. Read His Word. Study it. Meditate on it. And then do it. That's what it means to pursue righteousness. It means to find out what God wants you to do and then do it. And we could go a thousand different ways with this because there are a whole lot of commands placed on us in God's Word. But today, I want to just get really specific. So here are three things that the New Testament tells us to do. So if you want to be someone who, because of what Christ has done for you, you are someone who's pursuing righteousness, here are three ways that you can do that this week. The first one. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Wide open. Go out there into the world and preach the gospel to everyone. So this week, as you're going about your life, you don't have to wonder, is this somebody who God wants me to share the gospel with? If they are part of the whole creation, which is everybody, they are someone who he wants to preach, he wants us to preach the gospel to. So if you want to be someone who's pursuing righteousness, you should be someone who's preaching the gospel. Not just to people you know, not just to people you're comfortable with, but to everyone. So that's one way you can pursue righteousness. Number two, encourage people. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So the Thessalonians were a very encouraging church. If you want to be someone who's pursuing righteousness, you're someone who wants to do what God wants you to do, God wants you to encourage people and build them up. So this week, a very easy, a very simple, a very clear way that you can be someone who's pursuing righteousness, who's doing what God wants you to do, is you can encourage people. So look for opportunities to be encouraging. It's really not that hard. It's really easy to be discouraging. Right? That comes naturally to us. 
When we're in a situation, you think I could say someone to say something to tear this person down. Instead of doing that, build them up. Number three, serve. Galatians 5.13 says, Only do not use your freedom. Don't use this new life that Christ has purchased for you as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead, through love, serve one another. Look for an opportunity this week to serve someone. If you want to be someone who's pursuing righteousness, somebody who's doing what God wants you to do, here are three very simple, very clear ways you can go out this week and pursue that kind of righteous living. Preach the gospel, encourage people, and serve. That's not an exhaustive list, right? There are a whole bunch of other ways that we pursue righteousness, but those are three Clear, specific examples just to take away all your excuses. None of us can say, I don't know what it means to pursue righteousness. I don't know how to pursue righteousness this week. Now we all know. Now we all know three clear ways we can go do that. So we should. Not to kind of earn some sort of favor, but because we have his favor. Because of the gospel, we should fight sin and pursue righteousness. Next, we pursue faith. Faith here, it's not faithfulness. It's not trustworthiness. It's belief and trust in God. That's what we're to go out and seek. But how do we do that? How do we increase our faith? How do we grow in faith? How do we pursue more of it? I don't have a passage to go to to make this argument, but... What I have is a, is a biblical, theological, logical argument. And I get that that's a lot of adjectives. But I think that the way we pursue faith, the way we try to get more of it, is by walking in obedience. Because of this. God's call on my life, God's call on your life is not something that we naturally desire to do. I don't naturally desire to preach the gospel or to encourage people or to serve people. I naturally do what I want to do. I naturally give into my flesh. I naturally pursue youthful passions to flee them. And so I can live my life in my flesh for Dan selfishly all week long without any faith whatsoever. It takes no faith for me to like me. I just do. And you like yourself too. It doesn't take you any faith to do what you want to do. It takes faith to do what God calls us to do. It takes faith to do what He desires from us. So think with me about a a house with electricity. My house, and I, I like electricity, so sorry if this bores you, but it's interesting to me because it makes sense and it can also kill you if you do something wrong. Like, to our house, we have 200 amps of electricity coming in through the wall. If I try to, you know, plug a lamp into that, the lamp will explode and short out and bad things will happen. And so instead, every house has this thing called a circuit breaker box. And what that does is it takes all that electricity and splits it into different groups throughout the house so that you can plug in stuff to the wall and it works right. 
And so you have different circuits with different level of amperage. And so we have one in our house that's, that's 20 amps. And if we plug absolutely nothing into that circuit, nothing will happen. But if I plug in a toaster and a space heater and a hairdryer and some power tools and a whole bunch of other things that draw a whole lot of power, that circuit breaker is going to blow. Because I'm trying to draw more power than it is able to give me. And so if you have a breaker in your house that keeps doing that, you have two options. Number one, you can figure out how to get more power from elsewhere in the house. Or, and this isn't very safe, so don't do this, you can just switch out that breaker for a bigger one. I want to let 40 amps through. And that's, even though the analogy breaks down, that's how we work with faith. When I'm not walking in obedience, I'm not drawing any power whatsoever off that breaker. And so I'm never going to need a bigger one. I'm never going to need more. I'm never going to need more power because I'm not using any power. It's only when I start to walk in obedience. It's only when I start to believe the gospel in such a way that causes it to work itself out in my life that I start to need more faith and more faith and more faith so that I can keep walking in obedience. So we don't pursue faith by just you know, sitting alone in our rooms and thinking, God, give me more faith. And if I just do that enough, then maybe one day He will. We get more faith by living a kind of life which requires more faith. That's how we pursue it. We pursue it by walking in obedience to His Word. Not to earn His favor, but because we have it. So we pursue righteousness. We pursue faith. We pursue love. In Matthew 22, this guy comes to Jesus to try to trick him. And he's you know, trying to trap him in his words. So he asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And this is his answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is telling him there is that if he wants to be someone who, who does what God desires, he'll be someone who does two things. Loves God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and who loves his neighbor as himself. So there's this vertical dimension to his love. He's supposed to love God, and then a horizontal dimension. He's supposed to love everyone else. So if we want to be people who are pursuing righteousness and pursuing faith and pursuing love, then we should be people who both love God and love others. And so the question we should be asking ourselves is how are my thoughts, how are my desires, how are my actions loving towards God in this moment? If you're trying to make a decision, trying to decide whether or not you should do something, you should ask yourself, is this loving to God? Is it loving to other people? If it's not, then it's not something you're called to pursue, something you're called to flee from. The way that we live, the choices we make, the emotions, the attitudes, the affections that we have should foster love in us for God and love in us for other people. And that kind of life should promote the same thing in other people. So if you want to know 
how well you do at pursuing love, you should ask the people around you. Say, does my life in your life cause you to love God more? Does it cause you to love other people more? Because that kind of life that is loving towards God and is loving towards other people will produce that in others too. So we pursue righteousness. We pursue faith. We pursue love. And lastly, we pursue faith or peace. Sorry. Peace here is an active, continual pursuit of peace. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. And he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers, the peacemakers. Those who go out and seek peace and bring it into places where it's not. Later, he says this in Matthew 5. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're worshiping God, and then you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Seeking peace should take priority over worship. Which is a strange thing to say. Jesus tells him to quit worshiping to go out and to seek peace with his brother. And notice how vague that phrase is. Your brother has something against you. Who who was the one that was wronged in this situation? We don't know. And it doesn't matter. Because the call is on us to go make peace. So whether you've got somebody in your life that has sinned against you that you're mad at or somebody that you've sinned against and they're mad at you, you should be someone who values peace enough, who's pursuing peace enough that you set aside all your petty disagreements and make that peace with them. Because otherwise, as you're there trying to offer your gift before the altar, the only thing you're offering is hypocrisy. You should put it aside. Make peace. Seek peace. But this isn't just limited to conflict. Tim Keller talks about the biblical idea of peace. He says if you've got this like table that just has a whole bunch of like strings and threads on it, that's not peace. But if a skilled craftsman comes along and they take those threads and they weave them into a beautiful tapestry, that's what peace looks like in the world. That's what the biblical concept of peace looks like. Every single thing is in its place and makes sense and looks beautiful. But that's not the way the world is. Right? There are broken pieces. There are frayed edges. There are threads that are out of place that someone has come along and pulled on and messed up the picture. And it's our job to be those people who weave those things back into place. Who look out at the world, who look at our relationships, who look at society and say, this thing right here is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how God designed His creation to function. And my role as one of His representatives should be to work to fix it. That's what being a peacemaker is. That's what being a person who pursues peace is. It's someone who looks at the world, who looks at relationships, and tries to make them the way that God designed them to be. And there are a whole lot of opportunities to do that in this world. And so we should look out and think, how would this community, how would this country, how would this college campus look different 
if it was functioning the way God wanted it to function. And that we should push for that. We should pursue that. We should seek after that. Because Jesus tells us that peacemakers are blessed and that they will be called sons of God. Making peace doesn't earn us that standing, but it shows that we have it. Paul tells us that we flee youthful passions. We pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And we do this along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Because of the gospel, we should fight sin. We should flee youthful passions. We should pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And we do that in the context of Christian community. Growth in our lives, it doesn't happen in us as isolated individuals. Growth happens in community. God created us for community. And so most of you are in this unique place where you just showed up in this new city, in this new campus, and you're going to have to decide, am I going to plug into a Christian community or am I not? And if you don't, number one, you're being disobedient to God's word. But number two, you're not going to experience the growth that you'll experience with other Christians. Because you're not going to be forced to grow. You're not going to be put in situations in which you have to pursue righteousness. You have to pursue love. You have to make peace. Because if you just hang out by yourself and with your friends and with people who are just like you, there's no conflict. It's when we get around people that irritate us, that say things we don't like that we have to set those sides of thing, those things aside for the gospel. So I would just encourage you, whether it's at this church or another church, uh, don't waste your time in college by living just for yourself and by yourself. Spend this time growing in the gospel and growing in the grace that we have because of what Christ has done for us with a Christian community. Now, we have made it to the second verse in our passage this morning. The good news for you is that the rest of the passage just kind of applies everything we've been talking about in a very specific way. He tells Timothy and gives him some examples of these youthful passions. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, able to teach Scripture, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul has repeatedly talked to Timothy about how to conduct himself in in argument. It's because this is what was going on in his church. And it's something that we can apply. This is a tangible way for us to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. If you hear people arguing about stuff that doesn't matter, about stuff that's not crucial to the gospel, don't jump in. Don't waste your time. Don't be a foolish 
arguer. Flee those things. And instead pursue Christ. And the reason why we do that is because God may perhaps grant them repentance. How different would we conduct ourselves in arguments with people or in arguments on social media or arguments wherever if we actually thought the way that I talk to this person, the way that I represent myself on this issue or not represent myself on this issue could lead to them believing the gospel, which is of much more value than their position on anything. as we're fleeing these youthful passions and pursuing righteousness, we should consider whether our actions, whether our words are giving people life or giving people death. Because that's on the table. As we close and move to the Lord's Supper, I want to read you a passage from Romans. The first 13 verses, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul, in this passage, makes it explicitly, plainly clear that sin has no power over us. We are dead to it. And what that means is that when you sin, and when I sin, it's not because some powerful outside force came into our life and beat us. It's because we chose to. We're dead to sin. Christ has paid its penalty and Christ has broken its power. And so if I sin, if you sin, it's because we just decided to. But the good news is that the flip side of that is true as well. Sin's power isn't just taken away. We're also given power to live a different kind of life. We don't just die with Him. We also live with Him. 
What this means is that we also can make the choice to pursue righteousness. We can make the choice to pursue faith and love and peace. So do it. This isn't something that that we do for ourselves. It's a grace that's been purchased for us. But so often we forget the reality that we are dead to sin and raised to walk in a new kind of life. And so if you want to be someone who flees youthful passions, say no to sin because you can. And recognize that when you don't, it's because you don't. And instead, pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace because you can. And recognize that when you don't, it's because you're not making the effort to do it. Because the Holy Spirit is able and willing. And that's what God desires from us. And so, respond to the Gospel by deciding to walk in obedience. Not because we need to earn His favor or His pleasure or His approval, but because we have it. And the response to that is living in the grace that He's purchased for us. So today, as we take the Lord's Supper, if you're new to BC, this is something that we do every single week. And it's because we believe that every single week we need a firm, solid, clear reminder of the grace that's been shown to us in the Gospel. And so what we do is we take a few moments to consider our hearts before the Lord. We take a few moments to consider the good news of God's Word to us. And then whenever you're ready, just get up from your seat, go over there to the table. The cup and the bread are laid out. We want anyone who is a believer, anyone who's trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation to celebrate this with us. You don't have to be a member of this church. You you don't have to do anything other than trust in Christ. And do this as a reminder of the fact that your sins have been done away with. Its power has been done away with. And because of that, you can walk in a different kind of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son into this broken world to make it new to make us new. We thank You for the truth that if we have trusted in Christ, then not only the penalty for our sins, but also its power has been done away with. And we thank You that that takes away our excuses. We can no longer blame our unrighteousness on anything other than us. And we can no longer blame our failure to pursue righteousness on anything other than us. Help us this week to both believe the gospel and also to make the effort to live it out. 
Help us now as we celebrate your death together, Jesus, to grow in our appreciation of the grace that you've shown us and to grow in our desire and resolve to walk in obedience.